Or I have a wonderful electronic invention I want you to see. see? It, it looks something like this. Hello and welcome to the Football Media Podcast. I'm your host, John McKenzie, and I'm joined by George Starkey-Midder, media and comms officer at Kick It Out and freelance producer for Talk Sport. George, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, John. I'm glad to be back on the show. I'm not sure how you're doing after yesterday <laughs> evening, though. How are you? I've been waiting for this ribbing. I'm doing okay. I, I know that you're going to make some kind of point about the fact that my beloved Marcelo Bielsa was felled by your beloved Frank Lampard. So should we just get this over and done with? I mean, there's been some brilliant football in the last few weeks and some brilliant results as a Chelsea fan. But there's very few that I was happy about than yesterday. And, <laughs> you know, the um, just seeing him in the dressing room <laughs> singing the Frank Lampard song, it just it, it absolutely made my evening. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I think that for me personally, I think there is a, a slight degree of snobbery that's been directed at Frank Lampard. Um, because he hasn't quite got the kind of the the, the backlog of, of of you know coaching philosophy that that Bielsa had, but so I was very pleased and proud for Frank Lampard. Particularly, it was record breaking as well. You know that second leg. Um, it's the first time that's been done. I think that you lose the first leg at home and and have gone gone on to win the second away. So I was very very happy for him, but. Obviously, commiserations for you, John. I should say this is also George's last appearance on the Football Media Podcast. Been a real pleasure. (laughs) This week, John spoke to Chris Dealey, an editor and writer at 90 Min, about working in the industry and his experiences of writing a book, Forgotten Nations, which tells some of the stories surrounding the 2018 Kanifa World Cup. But before that, George and I are going to cover some of the important news stories from the week in football media. George, you've got something about Nike and maternity problems. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there's a so a fantastic um, New York Times article that I'd encourage everyone to read if they haven't already, uh, but written by Alicia Montano, who's a former Nike athlete. She's an Olympian, US athlete, um, national champion, very high profile. Um, and effectively, she's written a piece uh, and also done an, a video accompanying it to highlight the hypocrisy uh, of some of the hypocrisies of um, Nike's uh, major kind of PR and advertising campaigns that they've done in the last couple of years, promoting female athletes, um, telling women to kind of dream crazy or uh, achieve anything. Um, but privately, the way they're treating their uh, female athletes um, has uh, left a lot to be desired. So, um, for instance, when she told them she was going to be ha- having a baby, they said that the um, they told her that the simple solution for that would be for her to pause her contract and for them to stop paying her. And um, basically, the problem being in is particularly in the states that um, athletes are essentially contractors for Nike, um, so they don't have the same protections. Female athletes don't have the same protections that uh, pregnant employees will uh, usually have. Um, and in the past, Nike have uh, penalised women for for being pregnant um, and, you know, r- uh, reductions in the payment in their contracts, all those kinds of things. And, and Nike has kind of affirmed that they have now revised that policy, but um, they are still able to penalise their runners 
if they aren't meeting certain performance metrics like being a, a top five athlete and there's no exceptions for pregnancy maternity and and you can imagine it's obviously very difficult um for someone to remain a top five athlete in the you know the latter stages of pregnancy um, and it can also lead to health complications when athletes perhaps try and return too quickly after having birth because they don't want to miss out on um on the essential money they're getting because also because these athletes uh, often rely um, on the money they're getting from their sponsor that's their main source of income um i mean so you know effectively what this story tells us and tells me anyway is that it is a reminder that whilst nike have really successfully co-opted the language of social justice in the last few years you know you've seen very high profile support for colin kaepernick um raheem sterling serena williams casta semenya um it is a reminder of what the company is essentially about and that is profit and that is you know you know profit margins that is the money that they take in uh, so it you know it was it was something that i think everyone knew but it was a useful reminder because i think for the last few years they've done a very good job of appearing like that they're on the on the on the good side of uh, on the right side of history as it were that's really interesting because i think you know before we've we've we have commented about nike's ethics before usually they they side with the big guy over the small guy um and i guess this is interesting because there's a sort of venn diagram there where obviously these athletes maybe aren't quite so high profile as people like colin kaepernick and and raheem sterling and serena williams but these lower profile athletes then are uh, are being shown up to be not as important as well so it's not even that this is simply affecting people at the bottom of of nike's hierarchy this is affecting everyone throughout the company all the way up to those apart from from who the, the the athletes who are right at the top of their games in the elite sports and I guess as well another thing I would say is you know this is a problem that we're seeing across football media as well this this notion of having um, of hiding away from labor law and and the responsibilities that you have for your employees by couching their contracts in um, freelance or contractor terms so yeah lots of scary things in there and that's a very good point and yeah bringing it back to football I would be interested to to, um, to hear and read more perhaps about um, you know female footballers who whether they have experienced um, similar uh, you know similar behavior from from sponsors behind the scenes obviously with a footballer you, you, you know you do have a contract tied to your football club so um, you know the sponsorship may not necessarily be the the main source of income but I would be interested to hear if um, if other footballers had experienced similar issues of course the part of the reason why we may not be hearing this is because uh, as uh, Alicia Montano pointed out that um, lots of athletes have confidentiality confidentiality clauses uh, put into the, uh, the their contracts that prevent them from speaking out on this exact issue so it um, prevents you know sort of faster change than we'd like to see it's a I guess a part of the industry that we don't really think about because we just naturally assume that contracts aren't problematized by things like the having of a baby so it will be interesting to see how how this uh, rolls out in future in, in in particularly women's sports yeah and i'd hope that nike would be shamed into doing the right thing now this has got a bit of attention but but we'll mm. see I wanted to talk a little bit about Bleacher Report. There's news this week that Bleacher Report have been using their mobile app to get ahead in the market. Bleacher Report, as we know, gets a lot of people sharing its content to Instagram. But now the, the turnaround sports publisher is trying to take an advantage of that behavior to get people to install its mobile app. So Bleacher Report has 
uh, updated its mobile app so that people can share content from the app to Instagram stories. When people view an Instagram story featuring content shared from Bleacher Report's app, they'll be able to tap on the post either to install Bleacher Report's app through their phone's app store or to open the app if it's already been installed. The publisher is taking advantage of of a functionality that Instagram introduced in May 2018 but has only extended to certain companies such as Netflix and Spotify. So what we're seeing here is Bleacher Report finding ways to get its content into people's phones using new technologies and making it more direct straight in there. So the mobile app that Bleacher Report have developed is usually used for push notifications so that it can keep informed about the various things that are happening in various sports. And Bleacher Report are hoping that this sort of new usage will utilize a fear of missing out so people will see other people sharing information from Bleacher Report onto their Instagram stories. They'll feel left out. They'll want to get information quicker. And so they're they're encouraging people to download the app so they have that direct direct link to customers. Now, before we came on, you and I, George, were talking about Football London doing a similar sort of thing. Do you want to fill us in on that? Uh, Yeah, well, absolutely. Um, uh, I signed up for it myself about half an hour ago, but they have decided to... um, start doing club specific uh, sort of WhatsApp alerts to your phone. I think they actually have been doing this since the summer with Tottenham uh, and off the back of the success of it, they are, are now rolling out to uh, Chelsea and Arsenal and, and I'm sure other clubs once it gains in popularity. But effectively, yeah, you get, um, you know, regular updates, I think throughout the day, certainly in the morning uh, with the latest news um, straight, straight into your WhatsApp. And I, I think it's a fantastic idea because um, it, you know, the, I will very likely I would I would guess be looking reading Football London stories when I wake up in the morning because it's something about it coming direct into your WhatsApp that um, that's a place that I will always um, look at in the morning I'll always check my messages um, whereas I feel like you get so many notifications on your phone so many push notifications from elsewhere that sometimes I do just kind of um you know zone out to him I don't really I don't really listen you know I don't really engage with um with with that many of my push notifications so to, to get it direct into your whatsapp i think could be uh, very interesting um to see how it sort of whether other uh, outlets end up following suit a lot of this is in response to the, the i think maybe a notion that that um a lot of social media have just like you said it, it's it's become comfortable we're used to just ignoring stuff coming through all the time on social media so a lot of these outlets now are trying to encroach into m- maybe more personal spaces in our in our um phone um usage so things like in email newsletters things like whatsapp places where you wouldn't usually expect to see these sorts of things coming and so you take a little bit more notice of them than you might usually so it'll be interesting i think as as time goes by to see how um the market responds to that sort of approach to um, disseminating information. Could it be the case that um, we'll just get numb to the idea of things coming through on WhatsApp notifications or email? Um, I think we're already seeing that maybe in email newsletter um, cycles. So I guess that's another one for us to, to keep an eye on and see how it pans out. I think it also is interesting for Instagram as a platform because it's it's almost a small play for them to kind of eat into a bit of Twitter's market in terms of becoming a a place where you share news articles. Obviously, Facebook, which owns Instagram, very much did that you know a few years ago, and and that's where all the articles were getting shared. But then off the back of uh, you know Brexit, the Russia, all the data um, incidents that we won't go into now, they've obviously reversed that trend. Um, and it may be now that, that via Instagram, they are looking to sort of slowly become a platform that does share a lot more news articles, but with a bit more control over which 
apps they allow to do this because I don't think this is uh, something that's been rolled out to, um, to you know the, the, the functionality hasn't been rolled out to, to many companies and Bleacher Report is one of the very few that are able to do it. George you wanted to talk a little bit about the, the newest documentary program that's on the cars for next season. Absolutely. I am very excited about this one. Um, so today, um, Chelsea have announced that the their production company, Full Well 73, will be going behind the scenes at Cobham and Kingsmeadow uh, in a sort of fly on the wall documentary about uh, Chelsea women. Um, and that will be across the course of next season. Uh, chronicling um, Emma Hayes and the siders that you know they look to bounce back from a uh, a season without silverware uh, this year. So I think the series is going to be eight hour long episodes, um, and I think it's going to begin from the Women's World Cup and then sort of go through pre-season and the highs and lows of next year. And the company are the same ones behind the Class of 92, uh, Sunderland Till I Die, I Am Bolt, Carpool Karaoke. So, you know, they've got a proven uh, track record here. And I just, I'm really excited because first of all, obviously we've seen lots of football documentaries come out in the last uh, couple of years, but this is the first uh, sort of, as far as I'm aware, first in-depth one uh, for a women's team, certainly in this country. Uh, so that'd be a really fascinating insight. And I think um, it will be interesting to see the kind of uh, the differences uh, between uh, the, the level of access you get compared to, uh, to the men's game and the women's game, because of course, whilst you know you had a documentary uh, like uh, like the one with Manchester City, it and you had all that access, it still very much felt, you know, quite controlled, quite a PR driven, uh, felt like a bit of a PR exercise. Whereas, um, you know, the women's game as a whole has been far better at opening up these spaces already and, and, and allowing people that insight into the lives of, of players uh, and what goes on behind the scenes. So um, it will be a really interesting um documentary and I for one am particularly excited to see just Emma Hayes in action because I think she's such a fascinating character um such an authentic uh person as well and yeah I just think uh she will make for brilliant viewing yeah I'm excited about this as well I guess my to to reiterate what I was saying in the last point you know um there's always a question of, of fatigue when it comes to using various new formats I don't think this documentary will be the one that does it of course but my question is what point does the documentary format lose its edge in football this is as you've said isn't is not is, is going to be a little bit more authentic than maybe some of the other ones that we've seen but if we start seeing more and more clubs doing well, I mean I know there's a Leeds United one coming out as well based on this season at what point do, do these documentaries start to look like thinly veiled um PR puff pieces that would be my question uh, of this do you have any thoughts on that Soon, I think. I think soon it will. I mean, because essentially, you know, obviously uh, all clubs used to do stuff like this, but it was the club, that, you know, the end of season DVD um, and obviously was far more of a PR exercise than, than some of the stuff we've got coming out now. But I do think soon people will start to, um, you know, grow tight. It won't be a novel thing. But having said that, it, I think it, what, what will end up happening is that it will be it will be largely the success of the documentary could be largely driven by the season there that they're actually recorded you know if it's a if it you know for instance if it was arsenal's if it was a documentary on arsenal's season this year i'm not sure it would get much um uptake other than 
Arsenal supporters. However, if it's, you know, uh, Liverpool season where they've almost won the title uh, and got to Champions League final, I think there's a bit more interest there. You see what I mean? So I think it will end up becoming a bit more driven on, you know, will people, will, 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 people beyond the fan base want to watch it, it will, it will depend on the season that's been had and whether people, you know, or, or the characters involved too, you know, I think people will be interested in in this Leeds documentary because of uh, of uh, Mr. Bielsa. So I think people will be interested in that naturally. He's a, he's a character. Um, you know, I think uh, that will be something that will, will pull people in, but uh, there will be other documentaries with less charismatic figures that, that won't attract the same attention. One final discussion point before we move on to the uh, news elsewhere. I just wanted to talk a little bit actually about a CNBC article about legacy media playing catch up to some of the newer forms of media that uh, that are around. So this week Sinclair, which is a TV broadcasting company, acquired Disney's 21 regional sports networks, which it bought from... Uh, Fox for $9.6 billion. Uh, and Disney wrote down its investment in Vice by $353 million, leaving the company with an investment it thinks is worth nothing at all. In 2016, it raised funding at a valuation of $5.7 billion. On the other hand, the New York Times um, released its quarterly earnings and said its digital subscriber base increased by 223,000. That means that the New York Times is now a $5.6 billion company, which is up more than 175% in the last three years. Now, Alex Sherman begins his article by asking a couple of questions here. What is it that has happened in the media landscape that has meant that a traditional cable TV media outlet has been sold to another TV broadcast? broadcasting company, uh, but a former media darling in Vice has been downwritten to a valuation of zero dollars. And also, how has a newspaper company nearly tripled its valuation from three years ago? These are not the sorts of things that we're expected to see within the media landscape at the present time. So in the rest of the article, the author argues that what's happening is actually nothing has really changed within the media landscape um, in the last five or so or five or ten years. Actually, what's happened is that distribution models have changed and um, after being held behind a little bit, legacy media outlets are now starting to catch up. So when when these new distribution models came out, new media companies quickly figured out how to game readership with search algorithms and playing off social media um, whilst keeping their production values low. And that often means, as we've seen, sacrificing on quality. But now, uh, given that we've got a level playing field, the traditional outlets have learned to play the distribution game whilst maintaining a consistent level of quality, which has kept audiences engaged and advertisers willing to pay to reach them. So I think this is a really interesting thing for me because I always assumed, uh, I, I think naturally, that what we were going to see in the media landscape was the uh, old media being overtaken by the new media. But actually, there's been a level of cyclicality to it. So now the old media are making a huge a huge stride forward with the sorts of benefits that we've said, their ability to produce quality content, but also the fact that they've uh, got hugely important brands that they can fall back on as well uh, and this means that actually we're probably going to see the legacy media do quite well in the next few years my primary uh, question on this was whether or not this could be seen as potentially bad news for um, the football media the football media i think has had a strong uh, showing from in terms of new media and we've had the traditional medias all, all sort of tied up in newspapers um, i wonder whether or not this will mean that we'll see a dying off perhaps of some of the or at least a trimming down of some of the the bigger new media outlets that we've we, we've seen in the football media. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, George. 
Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, certainly. I mean, as you said, I, I was sort of, it was a very insightful piece and I would encourage people to, to read it because it did, it did uh, share, sh- shine a light on, on uh, the sort of phenomenon of the last few years where, um, you know, it, everyone was talking about the death of traditional media and, you know, talking about, um, you know, pivoting to video and all these kinds of ideas where, you know, the, the kind of the old school, the traditional work were going to be phased out. But actually, um, as you said, you know, the New York Times flying high and um, obviously closer to home. You look at The Guardian now is back in profit um, after a tough few years for them. Um, and then you look at, you know, moving to bring it to football media, um, you know, as we've talked about on this pod, uh, Copper 90 having to um, sort of reevaluate their strategy. You look at um, other sort of new media outlets, Vice and what have you, struggling themselves. So I think um, it is a sign of potentially of the direction we, we may be heading in. And I do wonder whether, as you say, as you asked, whether actually now the smaller new media outlets may struggle to actually develop sustainable business models so it may be that new media outlets are a good way of uh, people getting into the industry building up a bit of profile uh, building up kind of a portfolio but it may be that in the long term you know past sort of three four years uh, the they'll have to essentially use that platform to then get themselves a role in a more traditional outlet um, because it does feel like you know when, when new media outlets like copper are struggling what chance does you know a joe or jane blog starting up a you know starting up their own small time thing have of actually creating something that they can earn a living from yeah, and we've talked about how much this this um, new media is is founded on venture capitalism and venture capital, and I think they looked at the the, the sort of profit margins that that you might have expected from the media in the past, and they were very high. And when those profit margins aren't quite so high for the new media outlets, you're seeing um, the the venture capitalists expecting more from the companies that they're investing in, or they're taking their money out altogether so it could be a bit of a a precarious time for some of the new media outlets i mean yourself as a freelancer uh, i'm very fortunate to have you know my sort of more of a secure uh place in in football media working for kick out on a on a on a contract obviously uh, yourself as a freelancer what i mean does this does it concern you that it may be that traditional outlets are kind of returning as the kind of gatekeepers to to uh, a career in in football is that something you'd be worried about yeah that's a good question i think one of the things i see a lot is that there's such a disparity between um the sorts of rates that you can be expected to be paid in the us and the rates that you can be expected to pay in the uk what we're seeing over here is because of the new media is trying to drive town costs so much we're basically the rock bottom of what you could feasibly expect anyone to do to survive as a freelancer and with more and more um uh, of that capital drying up it's becoming basically impossible i think to freelance over here the question i would have is if if we're going to move back to that sort of predominantly traditional model of media how much openness there will be on the part of the of the mainstream to use freelance writers more regularly as well will it will it simply be the case that the 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 way that the 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 markets will react is by um just employing people or whether or not there will be i guess subcontracted work out so i think it's becoming very very difficult to freelance really uh, especially in the sports media without having some kind of part-time job on the side elsewhere in the media news this week 
This week it was announced that TalkSport has won the rights to broadcast FIFA Women's World Cup 2019 on its radio channels. Elsewhere, data gathered from the Columbia Journalism Review shows that just 20 news sources account for more than half of article impressions from Google searches. So the top 20% of sources accounted for 86% of article impressions and the top three accounted for 23%. And those three were CNN, the New York Times and the Washington Post. So there's another thing that sort of stands instead for for this return resurgence of the traditional media and then as we've already mentioned football london have recently announced a new whatsapp service for some of the main london clubs which will see news updates sent straight to your phone and that covers everything in the week from us george thank you very much for coming on always a pleasure thank you and we're going to go to my conversation with chris Dealey right after this I'm joined today by Chris Dealey, editor at 90 Min. Chris, how are you doing? Uh, not too bad, yourself? Yeah, good. It's quite fun talking to someone who I've already met before. We know each other fairly well. We've uh, known each other from um, the, the Twitter sphere, but we've also we spent some time together during the uh, Kanifa World Cup last year. So um, it's, it's quite fun to see what was a project back then become a reality. So how are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. We we got to see one of one of the angriest football games I think either of us have ever <laughs> have ever seen. Yeah, the 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 media versus Kanifa game. No, the, uh... <laughs> uh, I was I was disappointed there wasn't a chapter in the book on that actually. Well, I know you, there's there's points where you can get too self indulgent, even for me. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about biography first. You were working, as you said, as an editor at Ninety Men. How is it that you ended up getting into the industry as a football editor? Um, almost completely by accident, really. So. Um... When I when I left secondary school, I went to went to university to do maths, um, which you might recognise as having absolutely nothing to do with football or <laughs> writing. Um, I went to do maths. Um, I ended up uh, leaving that course after about a year because um, just some various health stuff. It just wasn't just wasn't clicking. Um, the uni were good enough to to basically say have a have, have a second go um, if you want to talk to someone at the uni and see what other course you can get on. Um, turned out journalism was was one of the one of the avenues I could go down. Uh, journalism and, and sports studies, journalism and business, whichever whichever I fancied. Um, so I gave that a go. Um, had a talk, I think, in my first semester from two people at uh, a website that at the time was called ftbpro.com, now 90min.com. Um, and they were basically kind of looking for, you know, looking for students to, to submit a couple of pieces to, 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 to maybe, you know, blog for them. I was interested, so I, um, I did them a couple of bits. Um, and they were like, yeah, we, we seem to like you, you can string words together. Yeah, joined up with them, started writing for them, um, fairly regularly. That would have been about five and a half years ago now. Uh, my first piece, relevant, relevant still today, um, Hugo Uris's, his head injury, um, you know, it seems to always be Spurs, but yeah, Hugo Reese, head injuries in football, etc. Um, yeah, I, I never ended up finishing that that course either. Um, um, again, health stuff kind of got in the way, um, but at that point, I was kind of hooked into hooked into the football writing thing, and I basically just climbed the ladder at, at ninety minutes. I went from um, from being a, a, a very casual intern to um, up to a paid internship, up to up to being a full time writer, and then about three years ago, uh, myself and, and Scott, who runs the uh, UK content branch now, um, both came on the editorial team, um, and we've kind of 
don't know, just outlasted everyone, really. <laughs> what does your day-to-day life look like as, a, as an editor at 90 Min? What is it that you, you're generally doing? Uh, so at the moment, it's really, really exciting for me personally because uh, from about ooh, tail end of last year, I kind of formally took over our um, our women's football coverage. Started kind of formally owning uh, owning that, whereas before it had been kind of a you know it, it had been just part of the regular uh, content plan. It's kind of you know when something pops up, we'll cover it. Um, whereas now we've got, I, I kind of got to set a a really definite direction for that. I got to um, kind of um, gang gangway a few writers from uh, from Nighty Min to specifically uh, do a lot more women's stuff, which is which is fantastic. Obviously, um, looking to build up to the World Cup now, so there's a lot of a lot of it's strategy meetings. A lot of it is uh, a lot of it is still is kind of sub editing, copy editing because um, I don't know if how much you read ninety min or how much um, anyone else anyone else reads ninety min. Maybe that's not the right <laughs> phrase, but you do know that presumably. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we put out a lot of content, and we've got a pretty small editorial team. Um, so you know, there's a lot of time kind of buried in the CMS. There's a lot of time. Uh, keeping our new stuff but um, at the moment for me a lot of it's women's football stuff on Saturday um, we went up to the women's FA Cup final um, which was fantastic the FA um, brought us in at about two o'clock and we were um, in the changing rooms we were pitch side we were um, talking to players before and after the game it was um, that was really really cool um, yeah everything at the moment for me it's quite different to um, to the majority of the, of the people at Nightmare, but for me, pretty much everything now from, from now until the end of July is, is women's football. That's interesting because there's been a lot of companies, media companies in particular, making that move towards the women's football in the in the run up to the World Cup. So, are you, are you seeing that as a potential place to pick up a lot of uh, new new audience? We we'll cover it because we want to cover it. I when I was uh, interning, at, I think it might still have been FTB Pro then uh, four years ago for, for the for the last women's World Cup. Uh, myself and one of our other writers, Jamie Spencer, um, <laughs> we um, we covered the whole tournament from home at stupid o'clock in the morning. Covered every single game, every single match round, um, just kind of off our own backs because it's something that we we have a a real interest in. You know, I was a season ticket holder at Arsenal Ladies for for a couple of seasons uh, when I lived nearby. Um, so I think, look, I, I don't I, I don't think it's necessarily helpful the way that a lot of people have started to kind of compete with their women's football coverage and say, uh-huh. well, you know, these these Johnny come lately's this, that and the other. But what we've got, which which we're really fortunate in, is is a team of people who are really passionate about the women's game uh, and really interested in it and, and covering it not necessarily for kind of untapped audience reasons, but for, you know, it's something we want to write about, something we want to cover. Are you heading across to France then in, in the summer? Yeah, I will be. So uh, I'll be missing the first round of games... Because, uh, neat segue, I will be in Artsakh slash Nagorno-Karabag, uh, where the Kanifa European Football Cup is being held. It's a busy summer for you then. Very busy summer for me. I'm, uh, I've just got to try not to end up in some kind of foreign jail and it will be a success, frankly. Um, but yeah, we're, we're heading over with a couple of the, a couple of the video team from 90 Min to, to France for the, for the Women's World Cup, which is going to be wicked. Um, bringing the word wicked back is 2019. <laughs> Much underused. <laughs> uh, let's move on then to talk about um, you. So you're working as a as an editor at 90 Min, and you decide you decide to write a book. What comes first? Is is it the topic um, that you want to write about? Is it is it the the this idea of forgotten nations, or is it um, 
is it the desire to write a book about something and and then this sort of comes in later on uh, i've been kind of i've been doing a lot of navel gazing about that in the last in the last couple of weeks actually um because i i came into um came into the idea uh, a few years ago of kind of looking looking forward through my big inverted commas career um as someone who who has relatively little kind of formal training um this that, and the other i I've, I've never really come into this with a career plan i've just been kind of making up as i go along um and the thing but the thing i've always thought is it would be wicked if at some point i could you know i could write a book because that's something that i think is would be an incredible challenge uh, and some some of them i'm curious to see if i could do um so the, the kind of the will to write a book was always there um i had a, a chance meeting at 90 min with uh paul camillan from pitch publishing who are publishing Forgotten Nations? Um, he was in to talk about uh, to talk about Brighton. Um, to talk about absolutely nothing to do with with pitch at all. Um, I got kind of airdropped into the meeting at the last second. Um, we were having a chat afterwards, and he was like, "Oh yeah, I've got this got this um, publishing company. If any of your writers, you know, um, for Night Men, think that they've got something book wise in them, this is um, this is my email address. This is where we kind of want to receive pitches. Um, you know, drop us a line." And I was I was mid um, mid getting really really into Kanifa at this time, uh, and I kind of had a thought I had to think about it for for a week or two, and I was like, yeah, this is this is the perfect intersection of kind of what I what I want to do, and and having something finally that I really think could make a book because you know I, I'm sure you know how it is when you kind of you, you stumble across an idea and. You get really excited about the idea, and you're like, "Ah, oh, I could, I could do this. Could be an article series. This could be. Um, I could make a nice big long read out of this. At the very least, I could get a fifteen hundred word feature out of it." And you start writing it, and you just never get it past about one hundred and fifty words because it just doesn't, it just doesn't have the meat to it. Whereas um, with Kanif, the the problem is almost um, not overtelling the stories, not trying to tell too many stories because there are just so many. Um, so the idea was always. Um, the way I pitched it to Paul was not the kind of not to tell the story of Kanifa uh, as an organisation, but to tell individual stories, uh, whether that's the stories of the the players of the regions, um, or in, in the case of uh, Cascadia, um, the story of the team, uh, because that was a, that was a team who they met for the first time as a squad the day before the World Football Cup in London. <laughs> Uh, literally the day before kickoff was the first time they all met so it was always yeah so, so, so I wanted to write a collection of stories rather than kind of one flowing narrative um yeah and it and it, and it, and it came together um as as most things seem to have in my as I say inverted commas career so far came, came about more or less entirely by accident <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting you, you say you mentioned the fact that you know obviously a lot of what you do at ninety min is 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 almost is is different to this sort of thing. It had to, so it, it's not giving you the chance to sit down and write a couple of thousand words about uh, a, a team in particular. But it's also um, obviously a lot of the stuff that's coming out of, of the Kanifa stuff is is the sorts of football stories that you just don't get in uh, in mainstream elite football. Um, it, it is very and, and you do have some, a section in the in the introduction where you talk about. About that, how different um, this this sort of football is from what, what most of our experiences of football are. So, I just wondered to what extent the book was quite cathartic for you writing as as someone who generally covers elite football. Oh, it was 
it was uh, an absolute breath of fresh air. So it, the the kind of it got commissioned. Uh, it would have been about March of of last year. Um, and obviously the run into the yeah the run into the end of the season really coming up. I did barely any work on the book at that point because everything was you know everything was was City getting hundred points. It was Champions League final. It was Liverpool making that run. It was this that, and the other. Um, you know all the transfer stuff. And then the season ended, and I basically got to take two weeks off from professional football uh, and live at the 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 tournament in London, the the Kenefa World Football Cup in London, um, and just go around these lower league stadiums, the, these non league stadiums, um, kind of chat to the players, chat to the coaches, be around be around fans who are you know turning uh, turning football matches into into like mini cultural gatherings and. It was it was fantastic. It made it really. It's a bit of a cliche, but it made me kind of fall in love with the with the grassroots of football all over again because it's not you know like you say I, I deal with the kind of elite football day to day. Almost all the football I go to is um, is Premier League now because the team I support is is Carlisle and there's basically no London clubs in League Two and Carlisle's a nightmare to get to. Um, so just the the gap between the kind of uh, well, I'll go and you know I'll see this lot play and I'll see a good game of football, but I could watch it on telly and it it basically be the same in in a lot of those situations. Whereas being around the Kanifa tournament, being around those teams, being around the fans, um, yeah, it, it it was so completely different. It was just an absolute breath of fresh air. Do you want to give the listeners just a sense of what Kanifa is? Because we we're both talking about it, knowing what it is, so it might be good to just give a little bit of an intro to Kanifa. Yeah, so Kanifa uh, it stands for the Confederation of Independent Football Association. Uh, it is essentially um, FIFA for countries that uh, a simplistic way would be would be FIFA for countries that don't exist, um, except a couple of them do exist, and most of them aren't countries. Um, which, yeah, look, it's incredibly hard to, to kind of classify them all, but you've got um, it's basically international teams that represent some of them represent. Um, some of them represent kind of de facto nations that aren't necessarily recognised internationally. Um, Catalonia would be a good example if if they were to apply to join FIFA. Uh, Sardinia have recently. Um, there are um, indigenous people teams. There's uh, diaspora teams. There's uh, one of one of, a couple of the teams in Canifa are um, kind of big, again inverted commas real countries. There um, there's I think. I think now it's four UN nations have Kanifa um, membership. Tuvalu is one of them, um, and they come over for the uh, World Football Cup in the summer. And they're a they're a little island nation in the in the Pacific, which aren't allowed basically aren't allowed to join FIFA because uh, they can't host away they can't host enough away fans. In fact, they could, they could you know they. they <laughs> They, they they can't host enough away fans because they don't have the money to build those facilities. Of course, if they were able to join FIFA, they'd be given the money to build those facilities. Um, it's it's a really sure, uh, that's the whole point of FIFA. Right? That is exactly the whole point of FIFA. Um, and to be fair to to Kanifa, what they're doing is these uh, if there are teams in their ranks who want to be a part of FIFA, they support them. You know, they try and help support their applications. They help them out with their applications. They want to, you know, they, the, the idea of Kanifa is to grow the game, grow the game globally, and give kind of footballing representation to to anyone who wants it. Um, that can be somewhat problematic. Um, there have been uh, there have been quite a lot of um, a, a growing conspiracy movement um, 
uh, not necessarily against Kanifa, but involving Kanifa, because a lot of the teams, um, yeah, proportionally, quite a few of the teams are uh, Russian-backed separatist states. So um, you look at the tournament this summer, the 2019 Kanifa uh, Euros, and you've got Donetsk, are one of the teams playing. You've got um, uh, Luhansk, you've got South Ossetia, and you've got Abkhazia, all in that kind of Georgian-Ukrainian separatist Russian-backed um, pool. Um, you know, politically uh, and, and globally, they're um, quite touchy subjects. Um, but look, I, I've, I've spoken to a number of people. That the useful thing about Kanifa is that they are—they tend to be incredibly open with their uh, with their accounts and all their documents. Um, they've they've actually the I think it was the the general secretary um, Sasha who told me they've kind of tried to talk to Russia to say hey there's you know there's these places we're looking we do some international aid stuff uh, raise raise the profile of of football you know help these places out and they basically went nah no thanks um, so yeah Kanifa's it's a weird one it's a volunteer run organisation um, which makes the the kind of growing scale of it there's about 50 teams now makes the growing scale of it um i i think something that's becoming a little problematic in some ways because you know these are all people with day jobs these are all people with um with a lot of other things to, to talk to to talk about and think about also organizing international football tournaments um i don't know if i had to to sum up Kanifa in a, in a word it would be weird uh, but good weird enthusiastic weird I've got a quote here from the from the introduction. You, you write, football stripped of its wider context is nothing. A shell of the world's most popular sport. Football stripped of context has no rivalries, no branching narratives, in short, no soul. Would it be simpler if football were alone, a pure, sterile piece of sporting expression? Maybe. Would it be recognisable as the same game, the same experience? Never. Um, there are those who will claim that the sport... Uh, that sport and politics do not mix. It's important to get to know these people because it allows you to figure out if they're liars, cowards, or merely naive. So there's clearly um, quite a lot of political um, stuff under the surface of, of, of the book, um, which I think is, is, is obviously very interesting because, as, as you've said, it, it, it really astounded me that, that Kanifa will almost come out and say that they're apolitical, but every single almost every single team involved with Kanifa has some kind of interesting political background or interesting political um, oddity that, that that makes them who they are. So um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the, 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 the sense of politics that runs through the book um, all the way through. Yeah, so it's, it's one of those where, um, look, most of these places aren't in FIFA or aren't um, kind of recognised countries because of their political contexts. Um, obviously, as we already said, uh, Donetsk and Luhansk are um, kind of breakaway um, self-declared independent republics from Ukraine. In the last handful of years, there's a lot of civil wars involved. Um, there's the winners of the, the tournament last summer, um, Capitalia, their kind of team coach, team organiser, um, has been uh, accused of treason in Ukraine um, because the 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 team and the existence of the Carpatalian team, so a Hungarian um, diaspora team essentially in, in Ukraine, um, was seen as a promoting separatist ideals. Um, obviously, in Ukraine, they're, they're a lot more sensitive about that than 
the the majority of the majority of countries because you know they've they've had a lot of places try to leave um again a, a lot of them have been some of those have been have been promoted by russia uh victor orban in hungary is um something of a, an agitator locally as it is um and yeah so the context of that of of that the 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 um the context of the team and the the region that they represent means that since they won uh, the tournament, the Kniff World Football Cup in the summer, they have not been able to go back to Ukraine. The people who the people in that team who have family in Ukraine have been barred from the country. Um, they they've been told you you can never play football again in this country. You can't come back into this country. Um, so that, that's that's obviously an extreme case. But then you have places like uh, teams like Padania, which is um, a northern Italian team. The idea of Padania as uh, as a kind of a region in and of itself was something that was popularized by um, in the kind of the seventies, eighties, nineties was popularized by the Lega Nord um, and kind of played to uh, played to some quite unpleasant stereotypes and some unpleasant um, tendencies in northern Italian culture. Uh, specifically regarding um, immigrants and, and, and non-white people, uh, it's a, a lot of um, a lot of issues there with um, treatment of Roma people. Um, now, being a, an organisation that doesn't exclude teams on political grounds and a t- an organisation that doesn't allow kind of political expression at its games or, or you know it, it associated with it. Um, you can either create an environment where these these teams kind of coexist and exist together. There have been um, there have been cases of some potential members refusing to join Kanifa because uh, because uh, almost if you want their opposite numbers are already in there and they're like no we, we can't be in the same organisation as these people. So for um, a, a, an organisation that claims to have no political standing. Um, <laughs> Kanifa is it, it is intrinsically political. Kanifa's existence is intrinsically political, as is the existence of most of these teams. Um, you know, especially your kind of breakaway state ones, especially your kind of your you know, your Donetsk, your um to an extent Padania, although the team itself is very, very clear that it, they are not um you know, they're not associated with the Lega, they this, that and the other. It's worth mentioning that I believe the entire squad and staff who came over in the summer were white. Um I don't think that's an active thing, maybe more representative of the region. Um but 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 it's true as it's true. Um Northern Cyprus is again, you know, a very, very political um team. The final of the tournament would have been held somewhere else if it wasn't for the fact that Northern Cyprus were in it. Um, because it was meant to be at a um, at the home of a, a football club with a, a Greek Cypriot owner, <laughs> who found out and said, "No, not having that. Thanks for the best." They did get to the final. Um, you know, Tibet. A lot of big sponsors for the tournament threatened to pull out, or sorry, basically did pull out unless Tibet were removed from the competition because they liked the idea of having business with China in the future. Um, Kanifa said no. You know, this is we're not withdrawing. You know, teams on this on this ground. So it became very very hard to um, to get sponsorship for the tournament. Uh, in the end, Paddy Power stepped in because it's unlikely that a notably um, self promoting disruptive betting company uh, it's, it's not going to bother them too much to lose a little bit of uh, lose a little bit of the Chinese business they don't have um, but look yeah this is the thing Pol- politics runs through Kanifa and Kanifa's teams 
um, n- non-stop. You can't avoid it. Um, it, it, it's impossible to avoid. It. I mean, it, it just is. So, how do you ne- negotiate that? Is the, would you say that there is there is an overall arc with the the political side of things, or is it is it just a case of you bringing these stories uh, one by one and 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 just and, and just telling those stories? I think what I try to do is find and tell the the most interesting stories, the most accessible stories. Um, you know, regardless of the background of the team, if there was. A background of the team that was um, less savoury, Padania, for example. Um, yeah, I'm not going to shy away from it because because it exists and it's 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 as much part of their background as uh, uh, you know as the, the the Ukrainian separatist stuff is from Carpitalia's. Um It's it's all relevant. Um, but the idea was it, it's not. It, <laughs> it's it's the same as 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 you quoted from the intro. It, Football and politics, you can't not, you can't unlink them. They, they are, they are together for better or worse. They are linked. Um, so the idea was to just, just tell the stories of the people through the lens of football. Um, you know, it, it, of the individuals, of the regions, uh, and of the teams. But to do that, and especially for, for places like, um, you know, Northern Cyprus, like the Chagos Islands, um, you can't do that without then, yeah, without explaining the, um, the the political background, because you you do them a disservice if you don't. Let's talk a little bit about the practicalities of writing a book. How how did you once you d- d- determined that you were going to write this book and you you'd got it commissioned by this point? How did you go about structuring it and thinking about how it was all going to work, and then ma- making all of the interviews that you had to and and sorting all that sort of side of things out? So the fact that the twenty eighteen World Football Cup was in London was um, an absolute lifesaver. I'm not sure I could have could have really done the book um certainly not to this extent if it wasn't um you know to have 16 teams from from places like like Tuvalu which I've never have been able to get to um you know Capitalia Tibet um you know these are teams that would have been very very difficult to speak to if it hadn't been for the fact that they all came over in the summer or 16 of them came over in the summer now Tibet for one terrible at replying to emails um but but fortunately, you know that's that's something that, especially with the access that that Kanifa, um were able to give to to the teams in the summer, was it, it turned an incredibly difficult prospect of trying to get people in non nations, very few of whom necessarily spoke English, um, and making them accessible and um, and really kind of getting it all off the ground. Um, in terms of structure, I, I always. Um, I always had the idea to split it into several, um, almost split narratives, um, chapter by chapter rather than one overarching one, because I, 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 I looked at it and, and certainly the way I, I wrote it was I had a different document for each chapter and I treated each chapter essentially as a, as a separate essay. Um, and then kind of retrofitted, you know, things that I'd either already mentioned in another chapter or, you know, like, um, uh, the chapters with Cascadia and Ellen Vanin, who were, um, Ellen Vanin became the first team to be, uh, expelled from Kanifa, uh, last summer. Um, they've been, they were readmitted at the AGM in January. Um, but that's one of those that in the summer, the, 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 the story came up quite a lot, or the, it became, they became a small part of, of a few different team stories. So it was kind of like, right, okay, explain the whole thing, and then you can just like mention it later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was chapter by chapter. It was it was almost a, a series of um, you know five or six thousand word essays 
telling stories that all kind of fit together. In terms of the stylistic side of things, what was the experience of writing a book like compared to doing your usual day job? Weird. Oh, so weird. So um, so I, I, I write um, a lot of news and items. I write a lot of um, kind of opinion column style things now that um, I've got way too much editorial control. Um, but that's it's all, you know, kind of... 800,000 word columns whereas whereas this is you know it's massive feature style I had to um you know completely was completely retrain myself in what I was doing because I said I I didn't didn't do more than about a year of journalism at uni and they certainly didn't get into anything like this I've never had any um any real formal training so everything I've done I've made up made up on the fly um and yeah I kind of had to had to make it up again and, and and go back through and make sure I wasn't um repeating myself and i guess the main thing that that helped me stylistically was was doing exactly what i say to to any young writer who comes through 90 min which is if you want to write in a certain way or write a certain style read it read all the things that you can that are that are kind of along those lines uh even slightly along those lines and you, you'll intrinsically have a a better sense of how it should be paced so then you know when you're reading your chapters back and you go, and that's got a bit one no, or have I gone on a bit? What 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 I had to train myself out of quite a lot was um, feeling like I was going on about one thing for too long, um, because I'm used to not having much much room and used to having to make everything quite concise. Um, so you know, when you're going kind of six or seven hundred words deep into this into this explanation of something, and you're like, this this would normally be like a hundred word throwaway, but because you've got the space and because it is important to contextualize things. And because in the grand scheme of a book, it's really not that much. Um, yeah, you, you kind of let yourself kind of indulge yourself a little bit, but not too much because then it's just crap. And, and that's kind of what I'm hoping it's not. <laughs> yeah, that's the experience that I've had as well. I think writing long, longer form things um, when, you, when you're given that freedom to just go. It's it's so hard to not just start writing things and think, wait, am I just writing this for the sake of writing it, um, just to fill out words, um, because I don't actually know how long this chapter is going to be, or I'm worried that I'm not going to have much to say later on, and that that whole experience, I think, of just writing, thinking about a bigger picture context is 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 a really weird one that I've found as well. Absolutely, I mean, look, it's one of those things, and almost every single writer in the world is massively inside their own head, so <laughs> you'll be thinking about it. And you'll be thinking, am I am I going on too long on this bit? Is this bit too too indulgent? Is this does this need to be there? Um, so I kind of told that voice to shut up and then just just wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is good advice to to all writers. You know, there's a there's a sense in which just getting the raw materials down on the page is the most important thing, and then you have all the time in the world really to to sort it out afterwards. I Absolutely, I mean that's the the, the cliche, isn't it? Is perfect is the, is the enemy of done. <laughs> yeah. Um, in terms of just quickly before we close the, the the publishing side of things, how is how is your experience of of that? You you actually started off with a um, with a contract, right? Which is um, quite different, I think, to a lot of the people who I speak to who've written first books. So how did how did you go about doing that? Uh, yeah, so, so so the the pitch document to um, to pitch publishing, I don't know whether that was. Um, I don't entire. I think it was it's it's basically their standard thing. It was it was basically a one page pitch. Um, you know, this is what I want to write. This is what I want to write about. This is how I'm going to do it. Uh, just like an extended freelance article pitch, essentially. Um, and, um, you know, they, they took me up on it. They, they kind of the, the contract on their side, they've got fairly standardized. Um, and then from, from then on, they were incredibly hands off. 
um, you know, I was, I was, I came into it obviously not really knowing what to expect, but I was kind of expecting, you know, hey, can we have a look at, at, at this bit at this time or this bit at this time? And I just want to take a second to apologise to um, Paul from Pitch Publishing for my reckless disregard for deadlines. Um, I've had it's been a it's been a very very wonky last six months. Um, just just in life, a lot of moving, a lot of all sorts. Um, but yeah, they were incredibly hands off. It was basically here's a deadline um, to to get the book written by. Um, email us with a word document when it's done, uh, which was um, at the same time kind of freeing and terrifying because it means you're not. Yeah, it means you can go a couple of months, maybe a month or two without actually really writing anything when you're just kind of uh, setting up interviews or when you're, you're, in my case, your day job's kind of getting in the way quite a bit. Um, Because the thing about football is that your normal time off is your evenings and your weekends, and that's when all football tends to happen. Um, Just for all you who weren't in the know about that. Um, So, you know, I, I went... You know, at times more than a month without really putting anything on paper. Um, when it was just kind of setting up interviews and stuff. And the fact that I didn't have kind of rigid, um, point by point deadlines to hit was quite freeing. Um, but it also meant that when I handed in an entire book, um, no one had read it. I had no idea if it was any good. Uh, I spent about a week thinking, I'm just going to get an email back saying, change everything. This is rubbish. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but I didn't get that email, which was nice. <laughs> well, I've taken up way too much of your time already. So what's the best way for people to get hold of the book if they want to get hold of it? Um, search Forgotten Nations on Amazon, on Waterstones, on WH Smiths, on Foils. Um, I think those are the only bookshops with websites that still exist in the world. Um, it's on all of those. I've checked. Um, yeah. All, all, all good bookshops and, and some bad ones. And if people want to follow you, what's the best way of going about doing that? Uh, if people want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at thatchris1209. And that really is the only worthwhile place. And I use worthwhile in the loosest possible sense of the term. <laughs> well, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. And good luck as the, as the book comes out. No worries. Cheers, John. Thanks for listening to the Football Media Podcast with me, John McKenzie, George Starkey-Miller and Chris Dealey. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review on iTunes or follow us on Twitter at Footy Media Pod. We'll be back next week with another interesting guest from the football media, but until then, have a good week. Goodbye. Goodbye.